Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the west of the world. West of the world? Rest of the world. The rest of the Western world. The world. Anyway, thanks so much for tuning in. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Yeah, a lot, a lot going on. You know, just when you think things can't really get crazier, they get crazier and darker and weirder. So if it's okay with all of you, this is what we're going to do. I'll uh, make a few announcements in a moment, you know, the kind of assembly announcements of what's happening in the school during the week. And uh, then I will reflect on the many lessons and consequences of those uh, local election results. I won't have time to get through them all, actually. There were, there were, it was unusually for local elections. There was, I think, a lot of significance in them and lots of lessons uh, to be learned. And within that, of course, I will incorporate Keir Starmer and Beergate, so-called, then over to you for a whole range of questions. We've got questions from all over the place, from uh, Dubai and all kinds of places, and some great ones, great insights on those local elections uh, we, from our on-the-ground correspondents, a new idea on how we develop the rock and roll politics cooperative, the greatest threat to John Lewis since John Lewis was founded. Yeah, so there's a, for those, by the way, new listeners, I haven't gone totally bonkers. Um, well, I have, uh, but that will make sense when we get to um, questions. So yeah, there's all of that. And uh, before then, a few notices. Thank you all those who are subscribing to Patreon the new Patreon rock and roll politics site. Uh, The 2017 election special bonus is on there. And somebody wrote in and said they just joined and were thrilled. Yeah, you get all the others. They were thrilled to get the other ones. February 74, uh, 1992, 1983, and 2017, all cinematic elections with many enigmatic mysteries to solve, I think, uh, and hugely significant. Please sign on if you can on the Patreon website. You get other bonuses as well. Just a couple of other things before we take a deep breath and move on to the epic political situation and the Monty Python-esque political situation. Um, Yeah, I said last week I was going to announce with a fanfare uh, the details of my live shows at the Edinburgh Festival, the festival back as it should be this summer and then I realized as I was recording I'd forgotten to take the the details and I've got them in front of me yeah I'm going to be at the uh, Edinburgh Festival the normal venue for me in recent times uh, which is the space at the Symposium Hall that lovely uh, kind of theatre in Hill Square in Edinburgh I'm going to be there from yeah now I've said I've got all the details. Oh, yeah, here we are um, for the last two weeks of the festival, from Monday, August the 15th, all the way through to Saturday the 27th. And I always choose to do it in the morning. So start your day with rock and roll politics. It's at 11 o'clock each day for those two weeks. So please, you can get your tickets at the Fringe website. Uh, and um, they're, yeah, they're available now. So do book for those and we can have a kind of make... Uh, by the way, I'm, what I'm going to do there is a different show every day. So you can book for all of them. 
and it'll be different. But anyway, more details as we get closer to that. But um, that's where they're on. Before all of that, we have got together to make sense of it all. And uh, the place to do it will be on June the 8th at uh, King's Place. Uh, And the tickets for that are on uh, the King's Place website. That's the London Concert Hall. And uh, yeah, they're on the website. So it's June the 8th. Uh, Please come along. Uh, No tickets are selling fast they tell me so do book one or two or more speedily and then we will be the dates in the diary and we can get together i think by then we are going to be in a utterly mad world um judging by (laughs) the way things are going so those are the notices now we can uh move on if you want to email or comment on anything you probably know the email address by now but if you don't it's steverick14 at icloud.com So let's begin with some of the lessons for Keir Starmer from the local elections and the beer gate thing, um, because they are vivid and clear. Some of them actually are obvious, but I suspect haven't quite registered yet, and it's highly significant. One thing for sure about beer gate is this. We don't know by the time you hear this podcast, perhaps there will be more twists and turns, depending on when you listen. But we don't know the outcome of the renewed police investigation into that event. But what we do know is this. Keir Starmer, though quite often turning to Tony Blair and New Labour and the era from 94 to 97 for lessons about election winning, And remember, my broad argument has been there are, of course, some eternal lessons from the few occasions when Labour wins elections, but mostly the past is a treacherous guide. And I think uh, he had hoped in turning to that and the sort of incremental caution that doesn't offend anybody approach to campaigning, that he might have the same sort of supportive media that Tony Blair enjoyed. The one thing for sure from this uh, renewed focus on his trip to Durham is that he has got to accept there will be a hostile media, assuming he survives in this job. And isn't it a topsy-turvy world where the speculation suddenly becomes whether this former director of public prosecution a figure who can be criticised for many things, but I think a kind of integrity when it comes to the law is pretty damn strong. There's now talk about him going and Johnson, meanwhile, carrying on rocking and rolling and partying in number 10. But for sure, if he survives, he cannot work on the assumption that his incremental caution the focus really on one policy during the local election campaign, one that can not really be opposed by many, uh, the one-off windfall tax on energy companies to reduce bills, the adoption of apolitical terms to define his mission, respect, prosperity, security, will not neuter a Tory press if they sense weakness. It is one of the most interesting examples of the continuing power of the Tory newspapers, 
that a police investigation that had been completed and found that there was nothing to answer for has been reopened. Day after day after day, the Daily Mail put this on the front page, all based on some grainy footage of Starmer drinking beer in an an office where he uh, had had a takeaway whilst um, apparently working. I say apparently, I don't even know why I put apparently in. Of course he was. He didn't go up to Durham for a party. He probably didn't know many of the people there. They were working during uh, elections. But anyway, day after day on the front page, the Mail did one thing, first of all. When the focus returned to Johnson, when he got his penalty notice, they put on the front page, how dare anyone focus on this when there's a war on in Ukraine. But with Starmer, front page after front page, Ukraine suddenly becomes a peripheral irrelevance. The Sun follows up, the Telegraph weighs in, and suddenly the focus is on Starmer and whether he gets a penalty charge notice. Um, Who knows what this new information is that the Durham police have and so on. Now, I've no idea whether the new information is significant or not. But what is absolutely clear to me is that Tory newspapers, remember the Sun back Blair in 1997. The Mail didn't. It never did. But it was pretty damn neutered by the end in terms of its attempts to slaughter him by 97. Later on, it turned on him big time. Uh, Blair had the support of the Sun, and the Sun at that point was even more influential than it is now. He's not going to have that if he survives. And I think there's a danger for him in that. He might decide he must try even harder to woo them by doing the sorts of things that might please them, expelling Labour MPs, look how strong I am, an article in the Mail about how he won't tolerate any MP who seems to be remotely on the Corbyn wing of the Parliamentary Labour Party and all the rest of it. That would be fatal for two reasons. Those papers aren't going to change. Once they've decided they want to get someone, they don't stop. You cannot understand British politics without including in your assessment at every key moment um, an assessment of the power of the Tory newspapers to shape perceptions. Neil Kinnock gave the inter- an interview the other day. He was, of course, slaughtered by Tory newspapers, and he thought it probably affected about 6% of the electorate. That's quite a lot when you think about it, and I wonder whether it might be even more than that, because it affects the way the BBC perceive leaders and report leaders and so on. So I don't think they will change now. Uh, But also, uh, the reason I say this is because last week, just before the local elections, apparently somebody in his office briefed the Times that they were going to expel a load of uh, so-called, I don't know, Corbyn Easter MPs or however they described them. And they thought they were being clever and no doubt that correspondence they were briefing nodded approvingly because they don't like these MPs and they see this as strong leadership and so on. But it was very interesting. The Times put it out there and ran ran an editorial being critical of Starmer for not acting already against these MPs. It doesn't even work on the kind of level of briefing a newspaper to get its backing or or to make it more supportive. But it just overall gives the impression of a deeply disturbed and divided party. So that would be the wrong route to take. I think, of course, he needs a team working 24 hours a day to try and neuter 
the, the attacks. You never give up and shouldn't give up. I always thought Alistair Campbell was at, he was criticised from the word go for spin and all this stuff, but he was absolutely pivotal in Labour's sort of electoral successes because these newspapers are so powerful. And they did either neuter the impact or get support. So you never stop doing it. But I think you have to work on the assumption you're going to be attacked big time. And therefore, that leads to another lesson from this uh, beer gate or whatever it's called. And that is, it makes it even more important to learn one lesson from that early New Labour era, which is you must bomb-proof every statement, every interview, to make sure it is absolutely immune from terrible explosions taking off, uh, as used to happen with Labour's tax and spend policies. Blair used to go off, I think I've said this before, in the build-up to 97. He used to go off on his own sometimes and look at the policies and work out every possible potential explosion in an election campaign. I'll give you one example. He noticed, for example, that Labour were proposing a referendum on whether the UK should join the euro on the grounds that it represented a big constitutional change. And the constitutional change of that scale required a referendum. But they weren't proposing at that point a referendum on a Scottish Parliament. So Blair took a deep breath and came back to his office and said, right, guys, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to have a referendum on Scottish Parliament and a Welsh Assembly. And he knew all hell would break loose in Scotland and the Scottish Labour Party, and it did. But it bomb-proofed that proposition. Otherwise, Labour could have been accused of being all over the place, you know, uh, but they bomb-proofed it. And that hasn't happened with Beergate. When uh, Johnson and old Sunak got their penalty notices for the party in number 10, one, uh, the birthday party, uh, Harold Pinter should rewrite his play The Birthday Party to somehow incorporate the sinister madness of that Downing Street one. When Starmer went for both of them over it, those in his office should have said before he opened his mouth, right, we've got this one thing kind of lurking a bit, which the newspapers who don't like us are pursuing, this Durham thing, or they might pursue it again. Is everything we've said about it absolutely bomb-proof? And it appears that it hasn't been. There have been kind of evasions and um, different accounts given at different times. That renewed the interest of the hostile newspapers to make sure that they kind of exposed these differences almost as a scandal in themselves, even though it doesn't prove anything about whether or not he broke the lockdown rules. So that's a kind of another lesson from it. By the way, my judgment of it remains that yeah, the Mail on Sunday, on Sunday, I don't know if you sort of produced this memo from Labour Party headquarters, which included setting aside time for this bloody takeaway that they all had, um, as if this was damning. It seemed to me to reinforce the idea that it was absolutely a work event in which you planned a bit of time to eat while you were working, rather kind of 
soulless work, frankly. This sort of evening canvassing, phone canvassing, and God knows what else they were doing. And the fact that Angela Rayner was there kind of proves to me it wasn't a party. I mean, we all know that there have been tensions between the two of them. I mean, he wouldn't, it's, oh, Angela, I'm going up to Durham for a party. Come along. But everyone's, oh, sensational. What an embarrassment. She was there. It became one because someone accidentally briefed that she wasn't there. Um, but that's what I mean about bomb-proofing a policy. That is a kind of defensive thing, bomb-proofing. And I've noticed too often that he goes into interviews with things not fully bomb-proofed. And then he becomes a bit hesitant and tentative in the interviews. This applied to all the pre-election interviews because he needs to be evasive. So he was asked about, you know, they're making a big thing, rightly, about the national insurance rise at the moment, uh, saying they oppose it. But predictably, he was asked, Starmer, would he therefore reverse it if he got into power? Now, the answer is he probably or almost certainly won't. But you have to bomb-proof that answer. If you condemn a tax, it's an obvious question. If you condemn it, presumably you will abolish it the moment you get into power. Oh, no, we won't. Now, he's right not to give his tax and spend detailed plans yet. But you turn that caution into a virtue and say, we would not do it now, but it would be utterly irresponsible of me. We are planning to be a party of government to give our tax and spend plans for what might be two years time and a context that none of us know and we're not going to do it because we are planning for power and Blair and Wilson Labour's only two election winners from opposition used to joke about and Blair said look you just have to be a bit more patient all right guys you know you'll get it all right but not yet because we want to know when the election is what the context is that's responsible government but he sounded a bit hesitant and invasive when something's bomb-proofed you feel more confident when you go into these broadcasting studios. It's not about it's not or it's not just about charisma and all this stuff that is the easy assessment of uh, whether Starmer has the showbiz qualities, etc. It's about absolutely making the terrain you are on rock solid. Uh, but there's another thing, and that is this caution the tyranny of the focus groups, the burden of them always being there almost as if they're in the studio watching, leads to a kind of risky caution. So they wanted just, it seems to me, to highlight the windfall tax. And as said, who not many voters are going to say, oh, no, I disagree with a cut in our energy bills. But it's not enough. It reduces a party that claims to be the alternative government into a near pressure group campaigning for a one-off tax rise on certain uh, energy companies, etc., and a one-off cut in uh, energy costs. Perfectly valid and important policy, but not enough in itself. If you're an alternative government, you must be, at this stage in a parliament, uh, visionary, appearing to seize the future. And because I think of the kind of influence of mid-90s new Labour, seizing the future is going to become problematic because this future is very different to 97, though it was very challenging, 97. Public services were dire, etc. But this is a different electorate, functioning in a much wilder and unruly context. Scotland, 
still voting SNP, a party that wants independence. Sinn Féin now, uh, increasingly dominant in Northern Ireland, wanting a united Ireland. It's an electorate that has voted for Brexit and is still facing, without fully realising, the calamitous consequences of the Brexit route that Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost chose, unscrutinised by anybody as they made their disastrous moves. It's a country that experienced a financial crash in 2008 that changed so many assumptions and orthodoxies. It's a country that has just emerged from a pandemic. It's a country that experienced the austerity of the coalition era. And it's a kind of wild sea that we're all in now. And to just pop up and say, kind of, to use an image that somebody put to me in 97 when we were at the Labour election manifesto launch, uh, the, the essential message was we're living in this terrible, run-down mansion laid bare by 18 years of one-party rule, and we plan to change the ashtrays. Now, it worked there. People were joyful at the idea of a change of ashtrays after 18 years. But this needs bigger visionary thinking and policies to accompany them. It's the old combination where Labour only win from opposition, reassurance plus excitement. You have to have both. So those are some of the kind of uh, lessons for Keir Starmer. For the Tories, it's obvious, and I won't spend much time on it, because it's been much explored beyond the front page of the Daily Express, which portrayed the local elections as a triumph for uh, Boris Johnson. And the scale of losses on the back of what was a bad election year when they were last contested four years ago, something which suggests that, at the very least, the people have commented the Tories could well lose an overall majority. And if they lose that overall majority, they are sunk. They will not continue in government for a fifth term. They have no potential partners in the House of Commons. So then it becomes very like the kind of elections of the 1974 period, where, frankly, both the main parties were in quite a bad state uh, the third party, then the Liberals, were certainly packing up a load of votes. Um, that, this is when Jeremy Thorpe was at his charismatic uh, best before being, well, we know what happened with Jeremy Thorpe. And that might be where we are. You know, not much excitement about the main parties and a hung parliament and so on. So that's, uh, for the Tories, much reflecting to do because they are the ones who will have to face the consequences of Johnson and Frosty's Brexit over the next couple of years. We'll come to Northern Ireland in a second. But above all, inflation. And I'll be returning to inflation again. It is the most stabilising economic force to the economy, but to governments who are bewildered about what the hell to do. It bewilders them all. And the option Thatcher chose, which was basically to use high unemployment as a way of getting down wage inflation because people were just grateful to take jobs in the end, is not available uh, to this administration because 
there is actually a demand for work, not high unemployment, with Brexit and all the other disasters. That there's a huge labour shortage in lots of areas. So how are they going to deal with it? And Johnson's interventionism versus the kind of Thatcherite instincts of others is a fault line that actually Starmer could play on and support the interventionist instincts. You know, the old Blair trick. I support the Chancellor. I don't know where you are. You know, this kind of stuff. But anyway, in this case, you wouldn't be supporting the Chancellor because he is the Thatcherite. Although I'm told he's reflecting long and hard on what went wrong with his spring statement. Um, Ideology, actually, Rishi. Ideology. So there, but the, the more interesting ones, of course, were Scotland and Northern Ireland. And the triumph, again, of the SNP has made it absolutely clear to me, it's depressing because I hate referendums, that uh, the, the SNP will continue to triumph until there's a second referendum. There are other factors, and they're all interconnected. The tendency of England to vote in bonkers conservative administrations, but also the fact that they feel aggrieved that although they vote for these SNP majorities every time, they don't get this second referendum. Um, Now, there are a thousand reasons not to hold referendums. I think there is no way in which Scottish politics can return to a more recognisable battle over the quality of public services, uh, the levels of taxation, and all the other things that politics is normally dominated by until that second referendum is held. And I now only think the issue is what form it should take. And I agree with those who say there cannot be another fantasy referendum like Brexit. Here's the status quo where you've got every detail and there's this fantasy called Brexit, a a new paradise, ill-defined paradise. The details of the independent settlement must be worked out first and then put to the electorate. But I can see no way out of it, and I hate referendums. I I would almost ban the damn things, but I can't see how it uh, changes in Scotland until that happens. And I've got many of you email me from Scotland and listen from Scotland. I'll be interested to hear what you think, whether you think I'm being... I've got loads of listeners I know who want independence, and I can completely understand that pull. But um, I actually think at the moment the part of the appeal is just they can all say on the SNP wing of Scottish politics they're not giving us the second referendum we must have it it kind of unites all those who might have different views about what form independence should take etc etc anyway do I know some of you will email me and tell me what you think about that and Northern Ireland the rise of Sinn Féin has many factors but Brexit is one of them the moment Johnson and Frosty Frost for their own utterly self-interested, narrow reasons, basically Johnson's. Johnson couldn't go with the May deal because he had opposed it. The May deal had no barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain. Her deal famously kept the UK in the customs union until some technological miracle appeared that meant trade could continue without any barriers. Uh, between North and South. Johnson, having voted against that, had to find some kind of deal and put the barrier back uh, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. He lied to business leaders, saying that would mean that there wouldn't be any checks or anything like that. 
now Lord Frosty Frost has the cheek to say um, it's all got to be renegotiated when he negotiated it, as if it has absolutely nothing to do with him. We're living in madness, but a consequence of Brexit, and it was always going to be the case. I think I've mentioned to you before, breakfast I had with the German ambassador, before the outcome of the referendum, I think, or maybe it was in the aftermath where it was still far from clear what the hell was going to happen. Um, He said the UK was least suited to leave the European Union because of the Irish question. Some of Ireland in the European Union, a bit of it out of it. And so it has proven. And Frosty Frost and Johnson's solution was this border, which put Northern Ireland in a different place to the rest of the UK, and in some respects closer economically to the rest of Ireland. Uh, Now, the the rise of uh, Sinn Féin has many driving forces, but it makes the unification a more logical, reasoned argument when you have that barrier with the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland in a different place, economically speaking, post-Brexit. Now, there are many other factors, but I I wish the English exceptionalists, which drove Brexit, you know, we can go it alone, you know, First World War, Second World War, we'll show them, you know. Why is it that Northern Ireland, or part of it, wants to get the hell out of the formal link? Why is it that quite a large number of people in Scotland want to get out of the formal link? You know, the, what is what is it about England that's driving Irish nationalism and Scottish nationalism? So, yeah, yeah, so many different themes. I could go on, um, but I'm not going to this week. There will be more, uh, more reflections to come. But I, I kind of felt, I don't know how you felt, but I thought these kind of did feel significant in many different ways. Labour doing so well in Scotland, in well, Scotland, they did do well in Scotland, actually, in coming second. Uh, but it was in the context of the continued SNP. But at last, they've got a great Scottish leader in Scotland, Labour. And in London, some of the results were phenomenal. Barnet, as I kind of was brought up in uh barnet you know thatcher was our local mp in finchley in fact when i was at primary school my job she was um i don't know what she was then but she came to uh open our school fate and my job was to i wasn't the only one with roles i hasten to add but my role was to um show her around the school fates kind of stalls and one of them was a coconut shy and uh i said to oh that she said i'll have a go and she grabbed the ball and threw it and knocked the coconut in every possible direction i thought my god anyway uh but the idea of that now going uh labor and of course with the famous wandsworth westminster totemic councils labor are uh, doing well in these kind of metropolitan areas, unsurprisingly, as a reaction against this uh, populist uh, Brexity, Brexit party, UKIP-style government. And so are the Lib Dems, because they now have just about emerged from the... um, The era wasn't joining that coalition. The era was Nick Clegg's early unqualified enthusiasm for the turbocharged Thatcherism that they then pursued economically 
and in some of the public service reforms. That was the error. But anyway, they they now, uh, uh, I mean, they did incredibly well. So did the Greens. Further warnings, incidentally, for Keir Starmer. If he opts for cautious incrementalism, people will go elsewhere in this unruly context in which we are all navigating our way through. I could go on and on and on, like Margaret Thatcher said she was going to go on and on, but she she was stopped almost immediately afterwards. So I'm going to stop myself now and we go to questions. Oh, yeah, by the way, those of you, or points, those of you running, it's 34, 35 minutes. I'm going to give the email address again, uh, steverick14 at iCloud.com. You might be rowing or the bread making might be at a crucial point where you can't make a note of the email address. So I'm telling you now, when you finish 35 minutes in, maybe 36, there's a repeat of the email address. Now, one of the great things about our emailers is they give us kind of on-the-spot reports of uh, all kinds of things. You know, we've got our correspondent in France, Portugal, Australia. Anyway, more close or closer to home, Denise Willier writes, I'd figure out I'd turn unofficial election correspondent. No, no, Denise, you're the official election correspondent. Uh, And give the inside scoop on Worthing turning Labour. Yeah, that was another very good result for Labour. They got some good results in the south of England. Uh, Oh, yeah. One other thing on lessons before we come to Denise. They weren't that good in the Red Wall seats for Labour. Saying nothing about Brexit is not working for Keir Starmer. He's got to put a case clearly, forcefully. Red Wall voters will come round when Labour appears less like a one-policy pressure group and a forward-looking credible, radical, alternative government with a credible view on Brexit. Remember, I, I keep on, people, you know, around Starmer and Cosett say there's no voters' remorse about Brexit. There never is. Voters never accept that they were wrong. But they can feel betrayed by those that made promises that haven't been delivered. And in that space, an argument must be made. Silence is clunky and isn't working. Don't know if you saw on Sunday, those of you get the Sunday Times, they did about three or four pages on the economic consequences of Brexit in their business section and how damaging they were. There is an attack line on this government, but if you're too scared, voters just notice the fearfulness and timidity. Back to Denise uh, for a Labour triumph. Yeah, as our correspondent. I grew up in Worthing, and never in a million years did I think it would turn Labour. For listeners, four years ago, Labour had no councillors. Now it has 23. Worthing is a proud council town with a vibrant arts and music scene. It also has a declining high street, areas of high deprivation, with 25% of its children living in poverty. Well, that's a hell of a lot. Um, The reason Labour was able to win here include demographic changes as a high proportion of the elderly population have died and young families have moved in yeah it's it's this this great demographic divide is in some ways 
as big a challenge for Labour, if not more so, than the regional divide. And the two are connected. You get them back by being a big, credible alternative on many different fronts. Anyway, back to Denise. A dynamic and energetic Labour Party, which has worked tirelessly in the community, most recently working with COVID support groups and food providers. Superb local organisation, high visibility, hard work and excellent strategy. Good humour and a collegiate approach. This is really important, I think. Uh, political differences aren't allowed to get in the way of the mission. Let's just say it's very different from the local Labour Party in Hackney when I was a member there, which spent more time navel-gazing and fighting among itself than it did going out campaigning, and a high priority given to environmental issues. Yeah, a good list, great list. Uh, People don't talk about it very often, but things like humour and a collegiate approach are absolutely fundamental uh, to campaigning and to getting, for a start, pleasure from campaigning. If everyone's out there hating each other before they even start, it's not going to convey good karma to the electorate. Um, So they are great uh, observations. And Denise said, I hope this field report from the Tory Blue Wall is of interest. Yeah, it's really great to have these on-the-ground assessments. We're going to go from uh, there to Dubai, from Worthing to Dubai, a natural leap, because it's still on the local elections. Uh, Hi, Steve. Big uh, fan of – this is Matthew Johnson. Big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Um, It sounds me to say that the current troubles in Northern Ireland all stem from Brexit. Yeah, Matthew's making the point I was making earlier. The DUP made the fatal error to support Brexit. Yeah, it absolutely made no sense of the DUP to back Brexit. They didn't think things through. Consequences. Both Ireland and the UK being in the EU meant frictionless trade from both sides, which now no longer exists. Uh, with the UK having exited. Is this what Jacob Rees-Mogg would class as a Brexit benefit? If you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg on all the interviews are really struggling to find examples of many Brexit benefits as Minister for Brexit benefits. Thank you, uh, Matthew. Let's move on now to... Uh, Owen Jarvis, uh, really enjoying the podcast, which I tend to listen to when doing Pilates, uh, which has been invaluable in sorting out some long-running back issues. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I hope you can concentrate on both. That's the key challenge with uh, Pilates and listening to rock and roll politics. I would be happy to open the rock and roll politics Pilates studio for the cooperative. Whilst it's important to have a thick skin in politics, is it important to have a strong backbone? It certainly is. This We're taking you up on it, Owen. Pilates for our rock and roll politics community is your brief. I think we need an actual strong backbone and a metaphorical one. Owen says, I one, I've been wondering whether Labour might consider making a far more of the word security in pitching for a solid middle ground vote, whether food security, military security, energy security, employment security. Yeah, it's very interesting, uh, Owen. I was speaking to a very senior Labour figure with much experience of electioneering, and he is of the view that of those three apolitical words that Keir Starmer has sort of hidden behind, prosperity, security, and respect – you should forget about prosperity and respect. I mean, of course, who's against prosperity, etc. But 
security is a way of being both reassuring and exciting. So security can mean security in relation to the NHS and knowing you're going to get your treatment without having to wait 10 years or being able to see a GP. That can be security as much as crime and defence, etc. So I think you're onto something and you're not alone in thinking that, oh, now back to your Pilates, please, and uh, we'll all be in touch. I've never done Pilates. I've tried yoga. I find my mind wanders. But maybe I should do yoga listening to this podcast, although I might go crazy thinking about it. Anyway, from John Hodgson. Hi, Steve. Love the podcast and have just signed up to Patreon. Oh, thank you, John, as the temptation to your take on the extraordinary 2017 election was too much to resist. Yeah, uh, thank you, John. I agree it was absolutely extraordinary. Ree Johnson and potential leadership election. I wonder if the jeopardy to him may be more substantial than many think about the no-confidence letters threshold and whether that is reached. On the face of it, the struggle to get the letters may suggest there is nowhere near the number of MPs to vote to kick him out. However, there's a big difference between making an active choice to send a signed letter with your name on and a vote in a secret ballot if one is triggered, where it's expected all MPs would actually vote, actively vote. Yeah, they would, and you're right. It's a, it is a secret ballot. And so John... Th- is implying or suggesting that if that vote is triggered, Johnson could well lose because secret ballots, nothing a leader can do about it. No doubt many MPs will pledge their support to all kinds of Johnson allies, but do something different. And you're right, in that context, um, if there is a vote of confidence, I think he could well be right. He's in um, difficulty. Thank you, John. Steve Petrie. He, Steve is our kind of international affairs uh, correspondent, having spent a lot of time in uh, the Foreign Office and elsewhere. And he's writing, I don't know if any of you heard last week, I was talking about Ukraine and the danger of accidents happening when there are so many moving parts, none of them with clearly defined objectives. That Putin must lose, for example, is not a clearly defined objective. Um, Anyway, Steve Petrie writes, Western leaders should focus, by the way, I mentioned AJP Taylor, the historian, you know, and in the origins of the First World War context, where he argued that um, almost by accident, the world went to a terrible slaughter. Uh, Steve Petrie writes, Western leaders should focus on promoting accepted norms and conventions in international relations, the right of sovereign states to defend themselves against aggression, the legitimacy of supporting them in this, the need to restore the internationally recognized status quo before such things as the invasion. As far as possible, these should be presented as matter of fact, robustly, but without rhetorical embellishment. The issue of war crimes is more difficult and will be an obstacle to de-escalation because of the implied culpability of Russian leaders. Any statements about war crimes should therefore focus on the principles involved and, importantly, who should do so without compromise to those principles. Again, statements should be made objectively and without embellishment. This is all about the dangers of escalation. 
I won't try to sketch out how the process might develop beyond this. As AJP Taylor once wrote, in my version of history, I'm told everything happens by accident. I can't predict the accidents which might result in what I've described uh, or any other outcome. But by changing the language, Western leaders will themselves have taken the first step very tentatively towards a process of de-escalation. I agree, Steve. Thank you for that. Language is so important. And the more it can appear to be objective and restrained and relating to rules and principles rather than this, you know, we must get rid of Putin or they must get rid of Putin or Putin must lose, uh, etc. Perhaps there is a de-escalation in the whole tension and therefore perhaps accidents don't happen in quite the same way. Although, you know, who knows? Oh, yeah, on co-payments. Thank you, Steve. Yasmin Ali Ali writes, as someone who grew up in a very debt-averse, low-income family, which has just given me an appreciation of the mindset of many poorer citizens, there's a real deterrent effect to co-payment. The the comment made by a contributor to the podcast that there's already a system in existence around prescription charges to exempt the poor from payment is inaccurate. Older people, the age is about to rise further, are exempt from prescription charges in England, as are people in receipt of some, but not all, common benefits. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, Yasmin goes on to sort of reinforce the Tim Bale point that co-payments will deter those who just miss out on getting it for free from going they'll to a doctor they'll fall further ill and the overall effect will be to cost more she makes the point also that to administer it is expensive as does uh thank you yasmin yeah uh, uh, there are some brilliant arguments against co-payment coming in Uh, it's very interesting all those from the uk are against more or less i think but those who do live uh, in europe in other parts of europe are pro having experienced versions of it which they claim are fair but thank you yasmin uh nick radcliffe long time listener every episode ever yeah thank you nick uh did you listen to them all in one go in which case you're crazy from edinburgh yeah i remember nick you're in edinburgh oh delighted to hear you're coming back for a stint at the fringe this year i'll come more than once so that's great so i hope to make it different each time nick and yeah let's me uh do come up at the end and say hello on cake co-payments i'm very much of the view there'd be a mistake in britain in addition to other arguments, uh, he makes the point there's a significant cost of administering co-payments. Yeah, so you could end up paying more than anything. And he worries about the slippery slope in which things like increased tuition fees uh, at universities, you could find co-payments being tripled in the same way. Yeah, uh, good point, uh, Nick. Uh, uh, in the UK, I detect no great enthusiasm for this. Simon Lockyer, if the system is brought in, wouldn't it lead to a two-tier system with the best GPs and hospitals changing more, resulting in some... And hospitals, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. GPs uh, going into and gaming the system to make more money. Uh, Yeah, quite possibly, uh, Simon. This is not taking off in the UK. but, But can I ask all of you, how do we get the money in, given the... uh, you know, just fear of tax rises in parts of the UK.
Geraldine Hellerly writes, uh, looking forward to the June show. Thank you, Geraldine. See you there. Yeah, we're going to have some fun in June, but do book the tickets because uh, I think the tickets are selling quite quickly. I have a very strong feeling about Wes Streeting, Streeting as a possible leader if Keir Starmer goes. Various Tory politicians and commentators are very impressed with him. I think he cuts through, has tremendous energy, and actually answers the questions. Yet it, it, He's on a roll at the moment. And certainly, you know, if Starmer were to go, and isn't it interesting that we are even talking in that kind of uh, context because of uh, events of recent days that uh, the candidate or potential candidate on a roll at that time is very well placed. Tony Blair won in 1994 because he was on a roll as Shadow Home Affairs Secretary. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Instantly a soundbite invented by Gordon Brown and given to him. Gordon Brown was not on a roll at the time and we all know what happened. So he is certainly one to watch and uh, I mean there's quite a pressure on being praised by so many um, as well as it being rather nice who wouldn't want to be praised in the way he is being at the moment thank you Geraldine uh, see you in June uh, is that next month it's coming up uh, Ashley Amos I'm a long time listener to your superb podcast oh thank you Ashley and have enjoyed your Patreon pieces on the elections oh yeah thank you uh, my dad was a young conservative and campaigned for Heath I would say that politics back then was of a, a distinctly higher quality Wilson versus Heath which at the time uh, was kind of derided as a rather lacklustre context now looks like a battle between two heavyweights. Anyway, I write about the huge challenge for Keir Starmer. His name sounds like a strong, ragged, rugged brand of off-roader. And I heard a joke on, have I got news for you on Friday? That explained to me why the electorate, especially in England, find it difficult to turn to Starmer, even when Johnson looks and sounds so morally and politically bankrupt. Starmer was described by one guest panellist as being like the boring-sounding neighbour who offers to mow your front lawn for you whilst you're on holiday after mowing his own. I don't want to be down on these fundamentally decent people, but it explains to some extent why some voters are determined not to vote Labour. How does Labour overcome this problem? Well, I think that actually Starmer, you see, he isn't like that. He's had the most astonishing, it depends what prism you look through, you know, um, look through this prism. He's had a, an astonishing life, really. I mean, everything he's sought in the end, he's got, you know, he got to the top of the legal profession, this tough, competitive profession. Um, and got to be DPP. He wanted to be a Labour MP. He was male in his 50s. He got a safe seat. He then got into the shadow cabinet much more quickly than most people do. And uh, after Labour's slaughter in 2019, uh, when many assumed uh, one of Jeremy Corbyn's followers would get the leadership, he won. So there is a narrative uh, to tell, which is quite exciting and interesting and dynamic. You know, why did he change from the law and being at the top of the law to this very different world of politics? How weird was it that as DPP he worked with Theresa May, who was Home Secretary, and then faced her across the dispatch box in various moments? He's not necessarily that guy who would go, oh, yeah, car fix your lawn. Yeah, I can see it's, you know, that it's not rotating quite as it should be. But, I, you know, he's not like that. But, of course, this issue of projection 
and reading a room. These are big issues. Um, and how you do that and whether you can learn it. I think some of it can be learned, not all of it, are clearly uh, issues in relation uh, to him. And finally, on our cooperative plans, uh, Noah Keats says, may I add to the um, rock and roll politics listeners celebrating the idea of a shared cooperative? It's almost beyond an idea and being realised, Noah. Were such a position available, I'd like to write the co-op newsletter, which could perhaps be called the Context Courier or the Consequence Crier. Yeah, I, I we got the sun and the mail should watch out with this. Uh, people will be going, you know, I order the Daily Mail each day, mate. I'm going for the Context Courier, please, if you could deliver that. Or the Consequence Crier. Yeah, we got, I think, both are competing to be the name of our best-selling news- newsletter. You're on, no. Um, he then uh, wonders about how politicians can have the confidence to make a positive case for immigration, uh, given the wider context. And that is such a big question. No, if you don't mind, I won't answer it this time. Uh, there is one to be made. It's very hard to get out there, given some of the uh, media outlets who you would be dependent on. But there would be a way of doing it, I suspect. One for another podcast, because that's about it, I think, for this week. But thank you all. Brilliant questions. Sorry I didn't get to all of them. Uh, loads come in each week. Um, and uh, as, as I always say, I genuinely read them all, and it influences the topics that I reflect on in our time together. And thank you all. So do please sup- subscribe to the podcast. That means you get it directly every week when it comes out. Uh, and if you go into the Patreon, you get it earlier. And ad-free, as they say. Ad-free, man and free and uh please put your tickets for june the 8th at king's place because it will be great to see you now we're allowed out and about and don't forget the edinburgh festival the details will all be on uh the blurb for this uh podcast so yeah where will we be this time next week i mean kissed kissed i might be in jail 18 months well who knows uh but thanks so much for listening with all your contributions in whatever form they take and let's get this rock and roll politics cooperative back together again next week thank you bye